didn't um, like recently or forty years ago or something? Didn't they um, change the, the the feast days for the, the saints all around? Right. So, yes. so it was mm -hmm. a, you know like for almost two you know for right. a thousand a thousand years it was like Saint Thomas Aquinas and their right. feast day was this day. Yeah. Sun and then one day we're like, well, no, we're going to change that. Right. Mm -hmm. This is it falls in the realm of administration. What happened was John Paul II said, look, we got tons and tons of saints in the history in 2,000 years. We have 365 days. We got thousands and thousands of saints. Now, the calendar is cluttered up with celebrations of saints from previous ages. And, like, the, the truth is we got saints from today who, whose example would be closer to the people today, perhaps. People like, for example, there was no room in the calendar for the little flower. St. Therese of Lisieux, who is to me one of the key saints for the modern era. Yeah. So what the church did was say, okay, well, let's, let's now, we've been celebrating these feast days for a thousand years. Let's say, okay, you guys have been celebrated. We're going to celebrate some new people <laughs> because, you know, her birthday is now, we're going to celebrate her birthday. And sorry, St. Philippitus of, you know, of um, Chrysogony, you got to go for now. We still love you. You're still saints. But we're just, so that's an administrative decision that the church made when she revised the calendar to put saints like Maximilian Kolbe and Teresa Littleflower and, and, um, and then some, you know, some of them stayed absolutely. Um, the apostles always stay, et cetera, like the underlying concept is a, the idea of a, a deposit of faith. Right. That, that's what our doctrine comes out of, is you know everything on faith and morals that was handed on. By the time of the death of the last apostle, it was kind of complete. Yes, it's complete. Not completely developed. Mm -hmm. We're still developing from that, but it, the, the, that content is That's it. great. That's the thing that gets passed down, the mm -hmm. deposit of faith, the things that we need to know to be saved. That does not change. So it gets deepened. But that administrative matter of when that's not mm -hmm. something Catholics are obliged to believe. That's not your doctrine. No, but the church has the right to set her set the rules of you know disciplinary actions for the good functioning of the people. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you say no, I'm going to celebrate Saint Philippitus of Chrysogony on October 1st instead of um, Teresa the Little Flower, the church says, then you know go join another church because you know what, this is the day we're celebrating her, and the church has the right to set things like that. It's the same thing as deciding whether men should be married as priests or not. There's another one you hear all the time about fish on Friday. The church <laughs> used to have the teaching that every Friday, Catholics all over the world were bound under pain of sin to make a sacrifice of not eating meat on Friday. What happened? Meat, or fish, became expensive when we caught them all. Right? Fish now becomes something that's very expensive. And then what's more, people were buying, I used to work in a fish market when I was in high school. People used to come in and order lobster for Friday. Well, you know, we can't eat meat, so we're having lobster. <laughs> so what had happened there? People had forgotten what the point was. The point was to make a penitential act, all of us together as Catholics, it didn't matter what it was, and the church could change what it was. So the church did, and she threw back on the people, and she said, look, because of changes in geography and demographics and what's possible and what's not, we're not going to tell you what your sacrifice must be. But every Catholic is bound to make a sacrifice, a penitential act on every Friday throughout the year. Yes, welcome to the church. It's <laughs> <laughs> a symbolic of the death, the death of Christ. Right. Until um, Sunday it's, is celebrated. It's our way of all year long remembering the sacrifice of Jesus 
So every See, Friday. Nobody's ever explained that to me. I I heard about the fish thing. My grandparents. I heard about fish, fish on Friday. I'll never too. be Catholic. But but by having that, doesn't that remind you? What's that? Like by t- by by when somebody says, "Why aren't we going to eat today?" They, yes. you can talk about it. But when, by, by getting rid of it, <laughs> yeah. it never gets. Well, they didn't up. get rid of no, it. What they did was they it. said to the people, "Look, you guys are grown ups. Act like grown ups and figure out something every week that's going to cost you, and you are bound." They didn't take away the obligation to make a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. What they took away was the the one that that was in common among everybody, and it's been a problem. You're absolutely true because what happened is. Nobody does it anymore at all. Well, yeah. even the, the tradition of eating fish is still there. My Catholic grandparents do sure. that. Sure. My family will still only eat fish on Friday. Hmm. You know, my, they'll never eat meat on Friday. Why? Because my mother's like, it's just too much trouble to remember to do something else. <laughs> and, you know, and it's like, they've been doing that forever. But you know what? We live in an ocean state. Yeah. So, so fish is, it's not like it's a hard thing to get. You know, right? You know, exactly. (laughs) So um, I think that... uh, Not just during Lent, but you're talking about... No, in Lent, everybody doesn't eat meat on Friday. But but it used to be um, until... When did they stop? When did that get dropped? Right around Vatican II? I think, I don't know what year it was, but I think it was, yeah. Yeah, it used to be that every... In our country, too, Mm -hmm. that does that. I think throughout the rest of the world, they still do it year-round. Yeah, and, and, um, you know, it's like you you are bound to make a sacrifice every week as an adult Catholic. On Friday, hmm. what to it is is up to you to, 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 to connect yourself to Jesus on His death on the cross on Friday. And you're doing um, with the whole church. So yes. Cool. Yeah. yeah. So, but that's another example of it's a it's in the area of discipline. It's not in the area of doctrine. And and if there's anything that you've got to learn that will keep you peaceful as a Catholic, it's this area. What is discipline mm-hmm. and what is doctrine? So true. And and um, once you figure it out, you'll be fine. And then you'll you know it's like okay, this is this is um, this is not their prerogative, and this is. And I can listen attentively when they speak on other things because they're wise people and they're prayerful. But um, no, um, it, it's only when it comes to faith and morals. Okay. Now is I'll give the you birth control uh, issue. Faith, faith, absolutely. In fact, birth control is the one that the church has been fighting the hardest for since and it's a great story actually you should read about how the church came to her teaching on birth control um, which was synthesized in a little document called Humani Vitae of Human Life which was written by Paul VI who is I think (coughs) still the greatest Pope writer so far we'll see what Ratzinger does but um, as Pope Paul VI's writings are so wonderful, beautiful, they're so concise and clear Um, but what happened? Um, Birth control comes into the picture in the world in the early 60s, right? And everyone's scared about overpopulation. And so they say to the church, it's you Catholics that are having too many babies. So now we have a way, you know, you're against abortion, we get that, we can take a pill, and then um, there won't have to be abortion. And we can also be good stewards of the planet by not overpopulating. So a huge committee formed. Discussion, moral theologians, ethicists give the Pope their opinion. Tremendous pressure on the Pope in the late 60s to rule that birth control is okay. Listens to all of them, and in fact, the recommendation that comes down from the committee to the Pope is birth control is okay. Paul VI prays, comes back and says, there will be no birth control. It violates the fundamental reason um, for Marriage and the relationship between the spouses—it's—it's—it's—we're um, not going to do it. 
and, it, and it still came through. I mean, his opinion, they called the minority report, mm -hmm. and there were, like, Pope John Paul II, who was then uh, Cardinal Bostila, mm -hmm. was was one of the, the uh, writers, or, you know, he offered his opinion for that minority report, mm -hmm. so it helped buttress Mm -hmm. Paul VI's decision. Yeah, mm -hmm. but he stood against the world, mm -hmm. and he said, "If we pass birth control in the late '60s, you will see an uptick in pornography. You will see disrespect for women increase. You will see spousal abuse and domestic abuse increase. Child abuse. You will see um, abortion increase." He said, "Because this cha separating of sex from parenthood, the, the procreative function from sex, if we do that." We turn women into objects. <coughs> and, and it's not, we're not going to do it. Um, so uh, he was ridiculed for that. I think he died of a broken heart, what they put to him through. But you know what? Everything he said was going to happen. <coughs> you know, and, and it's kind of amazing. Um, it's just amazing because he also said there would be health problems. It's like we're going to pump women through full mm -hmm. of chemicals every month. And, and what do we have? A 300% escalation in breast cancer since the pill? I mean, it's like weird that, that that document is so weirdly prophetic when you look at it you know, now. But um, that one, you know, they say more than half of Catholics ignore it. Don't want that. I've heard, though, that that is um, a misconception of 300% my dad's a doctor and he's done a lot of research on yeah. it. So. We, I mean, we, there's... Yeah, we, we can, can, we can look it. more. Yeah, no, but, but you know, yeah. there's definitely been a huge, huge escalation in breast cancer since the pill. Mm -hmm. and, abortion. and abortion. Huge. There's the medical profession doesn't want to talk about it, but it's, we can, we can talk about it and I can give you stuff. Yeah, I like this. Yeah, yeah. There's also, I mean, you're going to find out in the church uh, that they're still, in, including priests, and I... I don't know about the bishops, I would presume. Mm -hmm. Some of them still don't think it's necessarily, uh, what do you call it, the infallible teaching. Yeah. But see, there, there, there's an yeah, error there so. because... So it is infallible. It, yeah. Well, it yeah. deals with the natural law. Yeah. I mean, yeah. come on, yeah. you, know, yeah. you can't change the natural law. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he didn't there's, make an appeal on what, the basis what of the law? Um, yes. what we are, um, how we were created, the way the cosmos operates. Okay. You know, and again, what you hold bind, bound has to do with you are free to do or not free to do for the for the keys of heaven. So it's actions that have an eternal ramification are the province of of papal authority. And he said this separation of sex from procreation, this object, this basically saying sex is purely recreational, has a recreational aspect purely in marriage, and and that we can just separate that out. And say, you know, that's that's going to be a separate thing. He said, doing that will um, be. We do not have the authority to do that. We don't have the authority to fragment marriage and decide when it will be open to mm -hmm. to the transmission of life and when it won't be. And this bill, this was actually, this is actually the first Catholic teaching we studied ten years ago, and it blew us away. Mm -hmm. And. Um, thank God for the Pope who did not yeah. <laughs> agree to this because he would not be at this table without that decree. Mm -hmm. And we, it really came down to us. For us, as you're saying to God, 
no, I trust you in every other part of my life, right. but I'm going to take my fertility right. and our fertility, and I'm just we're just going to do our little thing over right. here. Yeah. And you're totally separating mm-hmm. yourself from God. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. I think, I mean, all the other arguments mm-hmm. played, but when it really came down to it, it's like, wow, mm-hmm. we're separating ourselves from God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Before, I got, <laughs> before I got married, I, I was actually arguing. For it now, yeah. now I struggle with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's a, the church doesn't say you should just you know no. live like alley cats no. and like have sex <laughs> as much, no. you know and have as many babies as your bodies can produce. It it doesn't say that. It says you know, and we'll talk about this when we get to that section. We're gonna have a whole class on human sexuality and marriage. In fact, we're probably gonna do an evening on it, so it'll be a, a nice block of time. And but you know, it says you you've been given reason, and you have biology. You have the ability to know when you're fertile. And sometimes, even in marriage, you will make a sacrifice so that you can be creating your family uh, with God using the gifts he's given you. So, you know, the thing the modern world wants to hear is, don't tell me I have to be responsible. And the church is always going to say, you have to be a saint. You have to be ongoing choosing, thinking, not doing some things, doing some things, and that in, that in continues in marriage. So the church is asking you to be a saint. The world's asking you to be a, an alley cat, and it's, the pill is that. It's beautiful because you learn how to work with the naturalness of how you've been created. Mm-hmm. It's amazing mm-hmm. what you learn mm-hmm. about. It amazes me that this. It's such. It seems like it's such a divisive issue, and yet I've heard so many stories like that where Protestants have. Right. Yeah. Have looked into this issue and been like, wow, and that's what draws them to yeah. the church. So true. It amazes huh. me how many stories I've heard like that. Yeah. So, uh, we'll absolutely be able to talk about everything and all the questions and everything because this one's one that, you know, the church has taken hits for. We've, I promise you that probably 50 to 60% of the Catholics sitting in mega churches, this is the issue. Yeah, they Even left the church like over there. Like fifty percent of Catholics sitting in Catholic. In Catholic <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. You're absolutely right. They just decided. You know what? I'm not. I can't do that. Can't do that one. Yeah. I'm, or I won't do that one. But and that is a doctrine, not a discipline. Right. That's a doctrine. That's what I was right. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. The Pope said that one. Um, this this one is falls within the constant. This one falls within the category of teaching in the church having to do with sexuality and marriage. So he he said, "This is my jurisdiction." So it seems like the one about making the sacrifice every Friday also falls in. Is that a right? Well, I mean, the, yes, that, that was a discipline. Well, that's so. a discipline. The church is a discipline. Said, it, uh, first of all, we all have the obligation to make sacrifice. We're supposed to be a penitential people. You know, we are. We are. When you're when you're baptized and confirmed, you're anointed with oil, and it's as a priest, a prophet, and a king. Right, the way that the Old Testament. Your priestly, um, or you know, anointing means that you now are offering sacrifice. Your world, place in the world is to offer sacrifice. So, church says you have this general commandment or mandate as a priestly people to be a person of penance, making <coughs> sacrifices in the world. Now, the church says, hmm, will they do it if we don't give them a weekly mandate? So, the church says, better if you make a sacrifice every hour actually. Once a day would be good. <coughs> but you know what? We're going to tell you by we're going to mandate once a week. You make a sacrifice once a week. 
and um, you get to decide what it is, but it needs to be in your mind. And so, to tell you the truth, me, I don't as a rule eat meat on Friday because that way I don't have to remember. But there are some days when it's like, you know, oh, if I eat chicken, then I know I still owe God one. I owe God one. And, um, and for myself, not that God needs it, but for me, I need to, to do something that makes me, you know, you know I'm not Is that God. why you let me sit next to Rosalind? Okay. Can we look at one more yes, scripture please. here? Uh, Matthew 23, first uh, three verses. It goes back to this issue of uh, the chair of Peter. Mm. Um, Jesus is addressing the disciples <clears throat> here. And uh, he says, Then addressing the crowds and his disciples, Jesus said, The scribes and the Pharisees occupy the chair of Moses. You must therefore do and observe what they tell you, but do not be guided by what they do since they do not practice what they preach. Mm -hmm. And then it goes on, but mm -hmm. it's clearly appealing to this authority of a chair, so yeah. it's actually an Old Testament tradition. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, right. it, and it's clearly the office rather than the person that, that is the it's, uh, it's authoritative thing. Yeah, it's like don't, regardless of how they live or whatever, that's not what your business is. Your mm -hmm. business is um, to follow their words, to obey their teaching. So... Very good. And it also points to our class on scripture coming up because <coughs> nowhere in the Old Testament is the chair of Moses mentioned. Mm. So Jesus is appealing to an extra scriptural tradition. Okay, so um, now I want to say a word about um, the church as um, and then switching gears here, and this is Lumen Gentium, and we can, um, we can talk about this uh, after you read it. But who's going to be saved? Mm. Who's going to be saved? What is the teaching? What is your thought on this? Are the Hindus in India getting into heaven? They don't know Jesus' name. Or how about Rosalind? I love when she said, I thought that was so amazing. Growing up in Brooklyn, an Orthodox Jew, she had no idea about Jesus. Yeah. No idea yeah. at all. With Rosalind, family, is there any chance her mother and father, she's going to meet them in heaven? What do you think? What is your feel? Okay, now let me say this. I know what you think because I know we have, I, I know what you're thinking from Scripture. How do you feel about it? What do you feel about it? How do you feel about Rosalind's mother and father going to heaven or not? Or the, or the you know, let's face it, three quarters of the people of India and China. Feels unfair. Yeah. Feels really unfair. Mm -hmm. Feels unfair. Just because they haven't heard. Just because they yeah. haven't heard. Feels like a, it feels like a waste, doesn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Like God made all those billions of people, and they're they're damned. Feels unfair. Is God remotely as keen on fairness as you are? <laughs> Is God more fair than you, or less fair? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we have a problem, don't we? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. We, we have a problem. Because our instinct, our, our love of humanity and our sense of justice says to us, it isn't fair that India and China should pay for the sins of the church. And don't get me wrong, it's the sins of the church that they don't know the truth. In the same way, it's, it's the sins of the people in this room that Hollywood has not 
repented. I've been here 12 years, good lord. Honestly, it's pathetic. Um, it's my sins that is the reason Hollywood's so bad. All of us. So, um, do do the pe- do the people at Warner Brothers who don't know, is it, is it their fault? What's going to happen to them? Are they damned? I don't mean to be picking on Warner Brothers. <laughs> Sony is the real bad. <laughs> um, okay, so who's going to be saved? All right. Um, Lumen Gentium speaks about the need for Christ. You need to be in relationship with Christ to be saved. There is no salvation apart from a relationship, an embrace of the second person of the Trinity, the Word. Because it is his function to bring light into darkness and order into chaos. That's his role. You do not be saved without being in the embrace of the second person of the Trinity. But if you do not know that the second person of the Trinity one day put on flesh and set up his tent among us and did these things and said these things as Jesus of Nazareth you can still be saved if you're in relationship with him as Christ. I'm synthesizing here. Okay. (laughs) Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is the one who brings light into the darkness and order into the chaos and beauty out of the ugliness. So we beings were created with the ability to apprehend light, order, and beauty. Truth. You know, truth is to know as opposed to ignorance, right? Truth, uh, what is true, what is real, as opposed to what is not real. That every time that happens, it is because the word is acting. So when God says, let there be light, it's speaking his word, and the word makes the light. There is no light without Christ. He's pre-existent. Christ is pre-existent to Jesus of Nazareth. They're knit in Jesus of Nazareth. The word becomes, manifest, takes on flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. And that's his fulfillment. His Actually, his ultimate fulfillment is after the resurrection, right? Because then he takes this body, and now it's this resurrected body that we don't get yet, but we get one day. All right? So, the church says, anyone who, every human being, from the moment they are born, is now in a dance with Christ. And he is appealing to them as truth, as light, as beauty, (coughs) and as order. Now, for some people, they get to know him in much more depth. And that's because 
he wills that those people who know more <coughs> go and instruct those who do not, so that we are assuming this constant relationship for one another. It's much easier if you know the Jesus of Nazareth story, if you have the church, if you're receiving the sacraments, if you have the Bible, if you are being in this tradition of prayer, they're giving you the language of prayer, it's much easier. But if the truth presents itself to you in the hills of Himalaya and your heart wants to cleave to that thing and you do, you are now in the embrace of the Logos. So, is Christ necessary for salvation? Yes. Is baptism necessary for salvation? Well, we have Jesus saying, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he isn't saved. What are we going to do with this? The church has this thing called baptism of desire, um, which is that because of the sins of the church, someone who wants to be baptized isn't would be baptized <clears throat> they, des they would desire it the only thing that's stopping them is the sins of the church you didn't tell them the story you didn't show up but in their heart they've been prepared by beauty by order by all of these things they, they are in an active relationship with Christ and so their heart their spirit baptism of spirit um, if they, they die in that place of just not having all the pictures but in this place of longing that, that is a baptism of spirit um, that we believe does the trick because it was not their choosing And, and we believe that God is at least as fair as we are. Um, so, do you need to be baptized to be saved? Yes. You need to... What is baptism? Baptism is, I choose to die so that I can live. That's baptism. We're going to talk about that next week. I choose to die. Unless a man <coughs> dies, drowns in the water, and then comes up again, he cannot live. So that means that little person on the mountains in the Himalayas, when he's confronted with the truth, has to die for it in some way. The rest of the tribe says, we're all going to steal Joe's property because Joe's the rich guy. And everybody's going to get a share. And this guy in the Himalayas who's never heard the gospel says, it's not right. Something in me says it's not right and they say well if you don't join us we're kicking you out of the tribe and so little what's his name has to die he has to crawl out go and live by himself because it wasn't true and then that is a baptism it's a death for the truth is it ideal no ideal is that he has the whole picture and that's our goal. 
because it's very hard for him to make that decision. You know how much actual grace you need? We say actual grace versus sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace is the sacraments, the direct infusion of God's life in you. The Eucharist, baptism, uh, reconciliation, the direct infusion. That's the system for God to pump his life into you directly. Actual grace is what falls on the good and the bad. It's out there. It's God's general benevolence and goodness coming at people. It's his little coaxing of the soul. It's that actual grace is God's individual dance with every human heart. And you can go along with it, but some days you're like, I don't want to dance today. Today I want to stuff myself full of pork meat. <laughs> and the God's saying to you, no, 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 don't, don't do that. You're like, well, that could just be my psychology or my whatever. My mother's voice in my head. <laughs> right. um, it's much easier if you have this. Say, do not give yourself to gluttony and drinking. Right Now you're, you're, you know, okay? So that is the church's teaching on who can be saved. Yes? That baptism, so the Catholic Church believes in infant baptism. Yes. So that, is that also considered symbolic death of the infant? Yes, it absolutely is. That's why, you know, the, the symbol of the water you know, is the symbol of actually being put into the waters of, like, being consumed <coughs> in the water of death and then <laughs> resurrected. So the, there, the, there has to be, a, you know, Jesus says, you know, you, you, unless you die, you cannot live. That's what he's talking about. So then there's an adult decision, too, I guess, confirmation. Mm -hmm. But is that also considered a, a death or? No. Again, no, no. Confirmation actually can be delivered at any time. We put it later on, and we'll talk about that um, when we get there. Um, but confirmation is just the sealing with the Spirit. It's a, it's a sacrament of the Holy Spirit in which you are, um, you are um, uh, infused with a with a, a higher degree of the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you know, um, but uh, but baptism is the um, the initial death. It's the. But is there yeah. a point in the if you're Catholic your whole life? Is there a point where you make a conscious decision? Every like, every day. Okay. Every day, every mass. Every sacrifice. Every sacrament. Okay. Every sacrament. Okay. Yeah. So the question then is, who's in the church? Is the guy in the Himalayan mountain in the church? No. He's not. He's in relationship with Christ, the Logos, but he's not in the church. He is what, the, what Lumen Gentium describes as related to the church insofar as Christ is the animating principle of the church and the church is the mystical body of Christ but he's not in the church Muslims are the Lumen Gentium says there are cousins because we come from they come from Ishmael who is the son of Abraham and they understand the, they are monotheistic and they got that from our revelation and the Jews are, are very close family. But they're not in the church. They're related to the church. But this insight of the, the, the church heading into the modern age, or from Vatican II, Lumen Gentium, this one cost the most, I think, um, anguish in people. Because it was so simple before, wasn't it? If you're Catholic, you're in heaven. 
there's a line in a movie I love where someone says, well, if everybody's going to heaven, then why the hell have we been sending money to the missions all these years? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but, um, but that's the teaching. So, so here's my metaphor, which poor Clayton has heard 18,000 times, but it works for me. The metaphor of the church is, is that this is a banquet table. And there is hors d'oeuvres, nuts, salad, entree, dessert, wine, full. And that's what Jesus, Jesus left us. This stuff had started accumulating in the very dawn of time. You know, in the beginning we got crackers on the table when, you know, God first, just, just from the cosmos itself, you know, some food to keep us going, the evidence of the creator in the cosmos. Then the revelation to Abraham and the gathering of the people. We get a few more treats in the table. Can keep us nourished. Can keep us fed. The prophets come and we get a little more. Right? The commandments. The law. Jesus comes and it's like boom. Huge, huge. Um, all the nutrition that we need to be able to live um, fully human. Fully alive. Psychologically, morally, spiritually, socially, intellectually, physically. So the church, this is the deposit of, ta- of faith, this table and everything on it. All of these things. You say, well, any of them unnecessary? No, they're all necessary to live fully alive. Jesus didn't give anything that was gratuitous. But you can live just eating the salad. So there are Protestants, and this is how I would see it, who are subsisting on the Bible and baptism. And and you can do it. You absolutely can do it. And you can attain a holiness. You can attain a knowledge of Christ. You are in the church. There's no you're not in the church because it's Jesus' church. You're not in the Roman Catholic Church as a full standing member, but you are partaking of the patrimony of the church. And it is holy making stuff. <coughs> The question is, why not um, enjoy more of what's there for you? Okay, well, we're going to start with the sacraments of initiation next week, which are, um, which is baptism. And we didn't do the first commandment. <laughs> we never seem to. I know, we have a hard time getting these in. Getting these in, yeah. <laughs> Um, but don't worry, we will. Um, we will get to it. And, you know, just keep doing the readings as they're signed here, and um, and we will get to everything um, as we go. So the reading for today's class is... Oh. Read? <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, read what? This is what's for next week. For next oh, week. It's, um, it's all from the catechism, I think, except there's a short story from Flannery O'Connor, which I will get you as well. Yeah, so he'll get us the river, because that has to do with baptism. He's going to talk about baptism and confirmation. So read the catechism. Lumen Gentium, he's going to email you because we're talking about the Holy Spirit in the light of in the life of the church, and there's one more section left to talk about, and that's the states of life. I spoke about them just briefly, but we need to just be clear. You need to know what your job is as a lay person, and what the priest's job is as a priest, and what your responsibility is to your pastor and your church, and what it isn't. And um, and so that's covered in in this document.